Welcome to the Investor Mama podcast, money conversations with a mom's touch. Your host, Jen Narciso, interviews amazing guests each week to help you become educated, be inspired by other money stories, and stay motivated on your own wealth-building journey. No matter where you are financially, whether you're in debt or financially free, this podcast is for you. Now sit back and enjoy. Welcome back to the Investor Mama podcast, Money Conversations with a Mom's Touch. I'm your host, Jen Narciso. Happy Thursday, everyone. Although I know for some of you may not be so happy, I've been glued to my TV set since everything that happened this past Saturday night over in Israel. My heart is just breaking right now, and I just feel terrible for all of our family and friends. And I'm not going to go into detail, but I am just thinking of everyone and been saying lots and lots of prayers. I feel like that's kind of all we can do right now and donate and give blood. But I still wanted to produce this podcast. I am very excited. I had the pleasure of interviewing Rachel Richards from Honey Money Rachel. This was an amazing, amazing, amazing episode. Rachel shares literally how to create passive streams for moms and she walks through multiple ones and she goes through different processes so you can really start and like tangibly make passive income. And so I'm really, really excited for you to hear this episode. Rachel is phenomenal. And if you don't follow her on Instagram, you must. She is just awesome. And she's so nice, so down to earth. So just she's just a wonderful human being. And I was so glad she agreed to come on the show. And I'm so glad that you get to hear her. But before we dive into today's episode, a quick word. If you are enjoying the Investor Mama podcast and would like to support the show, please go to InvestorMama.com slash make money. There's a ton of resources for you, whether you're looking to maybe start your own side hustle, you want to start an Etsy business, you're looking to start your own blog or your own podcast, or maybe you're a business owner looking to hire interns and aren't sure how to do it. All the links are affiliate links, so it helps support the show, and they're run by amazing people and amazing guests, all who have been on the show already. So definitely go to InvestorMama.com slash make money, and anything you purchase helps support the show, so thank you in advance. Also, a quick legal disclaimer. The contents in this podcast are just for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes only. This is not financial advice. Please seek a professional to discuss your unique situation. All right. So without further ado, Rachel, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hey, Jen. I'm amazing. Thank you so much for having me on. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. This is going to be so much fun. And I'm really glad you agreed to come on the show. <laughs> Thank you. I'm flattered. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Well, why don't we uh, kick it off with a little bit about you, your background, and what's your money story? For sure. Okay. So I'm a lot of things. I'm a <laughs> former financial advisor, best-selling author, real estate investor. And what people find most intriguing about me is that in 2019, at the age of 27, I quit my job and retired. And I'm now living <laughs> off over $20,000 a month in passive income from all different types of passive income sources. So that is kind of my high, high level story. I love that. So let's talk about this. First of all, why would it be important for moms to have passive income? I think it's important for definitely everyone to have passive income. So the way I look at this is we have all been educated on what I call the nest egg theory of retirement. Like there's there's different ways you can retire, whether you want to retire at 65 or early or whatever. So this nest egg theory suggests that you need to save up a certain amount of money in order to be able to retire at age 65. And studies have shown that millennials need to have like two to two and a half million dollars saved in order to be able to retire. And I don't know about you, but I just don't <laughs> know many multimillionaires, right? <laughs> like when I saw that number, I was like, how is that possible? There's, you know, that just seems so daunting and so intimidating. And the other problems with attaining this level of nest egg or this level of wealth is that, or being able to retire at all, is that social security is not as you can't depend on it as much as yeah. you once were able to like the social security trust fund is currently projected to be depleted by the year 2034 so then it's like well what are all of us going to do um pensions aren't a thing anymore the cost of college has ballooned placing an enormous burden on our generation there's just a lot of things that make it really difficult to accomplish this, like this traditional nest egg theory used to work well, you know, it's worked well for a really long time, but times have changed. And now it's not so easy to save this chunk of money so that you can retire. And I also don't know about you, but I just didn't want to 
work at a nine to five job for 40 years for the rest of my life, just in the hopes that maybe someday I'd be be able to retire. So I started thinking about (laughs) this. Yeah. And I was like, wants to retire at 65 too. Why? Like, why would you? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I want to, I want to climb mountains now and go on adventures and travel when I'm young, not when my knees don't work anymore. (laughs) So, (laughs) so I started thinking about this. I was like, is there another way to achieve financial independence or retire early? And that's when I started learning about passive income. And I became obsessed with it. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions around passive income. It's not a get rich quick scheme. Okay. And it's not something that you can just snap your money, you snap your fingers. And now you have out this passive income. It does take time and or work or effort to create a passive income stream. So it's not like just this easy thing you can go out and do, but there's a lot of ways you can do it. The way I define passive income is that it's money that is earned with little to no ongoing effort. Some of the passive income streams that I've discovered and that I use myself require a few hours a month to maintain or a couple hours a week. And some people would say, well, Rachel, that's not passive then. And you're right. It's not 100% passive. Most passive income streams aren't. But I still feel it's a lot more passive than a nine to five job, right? You're not working 40 hours a week. So it is still very passive. So I had this epiphany that, you know, I think it will be easier to generate five or six or $8,000 a month in passive income than it would be to try to save two and a half million dollars by age 65. So that is what I started working towards. And I was able to get to $10,000 a month in passive income, mostly from real estate, but from a lot of different sources by the age of 27. And that's when I quit my job and became financially independent. And you don't necessarily have to quit your job. A lot of people love what they do. But I I would guarantee that $500 or $1,000 or $2,000 a month in passive income would truly be life-changing for a lot of people, a lot of women and a lot of moms. Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, just thinking, so many of my friends are in their you know, mid to late thirties, early forties, and they're tired of the W-2 and they want that break, but they can't because they have no way to replace that income, especially living in a high cost of living area. They have to worry about uh, daycare or just after school activities, clothing, food budget, you know, balloons when you have kids, all these things. So even if it's just to be able to save more or maybe buy an investment property or whatever, an extra 500 to a thousand bucks a month would go a long way for so many people. Exactly. And to your point, Jen, when you have kids, it can be harder to cut your expenses as much as somebody who's single, obviously, right? Like I can save more money than a mom because I don't have kids. So if you want to save more money as a mom and you, you feel like you can't really cut your expenses anymore, then passive income is a great way to increase that gap between your income and your expenses so that you can save more and work towards financial independence. So I think it's just, it's a big benefit for, for moms for sure. So I'd love to kind of dive into each of the passive income streams you have and why or why not you think it would be beneficial for a mom to start looking into this as a pathway. Okay, cool. So I can categorize this so many different ways, but the first way I would suggest looking at passive income streams is narrowing down based on time or money. So ask yourself, do I have more time or do I have more money? And if you're anything like I was a few years ago, you would say, I have neither. I have zero time (laughs) and I'm broke. (laughs) So so then you can ask yourself, well, which one's going to be easier for you to sort of create more of? Will it be easier for you to free up some time in your week or will it be easier for you to generate some money so that you can create this passive income stream? Because you have to have one or the other or both to create a passive income stream. You can't just create it out of thin air. So that's the first question to ask yourself. Once you know that, maybe you say, well, I really don't have any money right now, but I have some time I can dedicate to it. Then you can narrow down the different passive income streams that are available to you. So for example, if you have a lot of time, not a lot of money, you can focus on royalty-based income streams, doing something like self-publishing a book, which I have very successfully done. We can talk about that. Creating an online course, doing digital downloads, print on demand. We can talk about what all those mean. Or if you have more money than time, then you can look at investing in the stock market. You can look at buying rental properties, investing in syndications, things that don't require nearly as much time, but do require for you to have money. So I'd love to go down the time route 
because I, I have episodes on syndications and I'll put links to the show notes to that. So if you're interested in learning about syndications, you can check out Camilla Jeffs. She talks all about that. And for real estate, I love real estate. I think it is a phenomenal wealth builder, but I would love for you to kind of go more down the route of the book publishing, the digital downloads and all that, because I feel like that's something so many moms can do, but may one may not know what it is or two have imposter syndrome, believing that they can create something that actually is profitable. Okay, good. I'm glad we're zeroing in on this because out of all the passive income streams, I do think that some of the ones in the royalty category are easier to start. Okay. And no, nothing's going to be completely easy or simple to do. Like it's it's just going to take time. It's going to take effort. You're going to have to learn. And it's, you know, it can take a lot of time to generate a passive income stream. But once you have it going, then it can become a, really hands-off. So within the royalty category, there's a few we can talk about. I want to talk about print on demand first, because I think of all the passive income streams I've learned, which there's like 28 of them, I think print on demand is beginner friendly. And you don't really need money to do it. You do need time. It's beginner friendly. Anyone can do it and have a pretty simple passive income stream. So if you think about owning a physical store or you're trying to sell products, if you have a physical store, you normally have to have inventory. Hmm. And when you have inventory, you're taking on a financial risk because what if you have this inventory and it doesn't sell? And then you're stuck with this inventory that never sells. What is so brilliant about print on demand is that it's all done online. And the products are only created when they sell. So you don't have to have these products on hand in the first place. They're only created or printed or designed when a customer actually buys the product. So you can have a storefront on like Amazon, for example. And the way it works is you des- you make designs that go on products like t-shirts, tote bags, laptop cases, phone cases, sweatpants, all that stuff. You create those designs. They go on the product. And the product is printed only if somebody buys that product and you don't ever touch it. You don't, you're not doing the printing or the shipping or anything like that. You just get a paid a royalty from the platform if, and when it sells. So it's oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask you, have you done this? Is it profitable? Is it hard with yes. competition? I've done it. It is harder now because it's, it's something that more people are doing now, but I, it's, it's totally doable still. I started it several years ago and my biggest month, I made $1,700 in profit. Oh, wow. And I really invested a lot of time for a good year or so. And it's a numbers game. You want to have as many designs for sale as possible to see what sells and then sort of create more of that similar content. So you really have to put a lot of designs out there and you have to work on things like SEO and keywords and marketing the designs and stuff like that. So $1,700 is my biggest month. I put a lot of time and effort into this for a year. And for the last four or five years, I haven't done a thing. I literally haven't touched it, logged into my account, looked at it, anything. And I'm still making around $100 to $150 per month. Not nearly as much as I've made in past months when I was more actively working on it, but it's a hundred percent passive. And like, I'm not going to complain about an extra hundred bucks a month. No. In my bank account. So I'm very happy with that. I love it. And with the designs, did you create the designs yourselves or did you hire someone to draw them or? I did a mix. So don't feel like you have to be a Photoshop wizard to do this. You don't, you don't have to have any design skills. You don't have to know anything. You can either outsource it all. And I found some designers on Upwork and on Fiverr who would just pop out design like 20 designs a day for me at a really cheap price. Or if you want to have a little bit of Photoshop skills, you can pretty easily create text-based designs, like maybe not graphic artistic designs, but if you see like a funny phrase online or a meme or a word that's cute, you, you have to check to make sure it's not copyrighted or trademarked, but then you can put that design on a shirt and put it up for sale. And it's really easy to do that in Photoshop because it's just words. So I was doing a lot of text-based designs myself. And then what platform were you personally using? I was using Amazon Merch. I think it's the best platform because it has the most organic reach. It has the biggest audience of people. I've heard also good things about Redbubble, Teespring, and Etsy as well. Okay. And any tips to get more viewership to the site, especially now, just starting out that you learned that worked? Yeah, you just have to make the most use of your keywords. So for example, on Amazon Merch, you can put a title of the design and then there's a few bullet points that you can include. And again, you have to check to make sure nothing you're putting on there is trademarked or copyrighted or anything. 
but you you want to make sure you are putting things in that people would be searching for, like cute, funny Father's Day gift t-shirt or mm-hmm. you know something like that. Like what are people actually going to be searching to find your product? And think about it in terms of the consumer mindset and mm-hmm. put as many keywords and adjectives and descriptors as possible into that bullet point. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. So then we got that, that revenue source covered. What's another revenue source that you would recommend? Okay. I love self-publishing. I think there's this statistic that something like 83 or 86% of Americans want to write a book. So for so many people, it's this hidden dream that we all have that so few of us actually carry out. And I wanted to write a book my whole life, but I just didn't know how to go about it. I used to be really enamored with the idea of getting a traditional book deal with, you know, all the, I forget the names of the traditional publishers, but <laughs> I, thought that, I thought that was the way to go because I was like, well, I don't, writing it is one thing, but I don't know how to market it. I don't want to promote it. Like I hated that idea of doing all that. So I figured if I got a, a book deal, the publisher would do all of that. But then I started doing some research. I started talking to some authors and I realized that's not the case at all. Even when you get a traditional book deal and you get traditionally published, they still expect you, the author, to do 99% of the marketing and promotion. And you're making a much smaller royalty. So How are these companies still in business even? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, there there are some benefits, which I can talk about. But with the traditional book deal, you're going to normally make a 10 to 15% royalty versus if you self-publish yourself on Amazon, for example, you can make a 35 to 70% royalty. Like that's, you could make seven times as much if you self-publish your book. And when you self-publish, you get to retain complete creative control over the product, over the formatting, the manuscript, the cover, you get to make all those decisions and you get to own and keep your book and whatever happens to it. Now, the the arguments for traditional publishing are that typically if you are actually trying to fight for a spot on the Wall Street Journal and New York Times bestseller list, it is much easier to accomplish if you are traditionally published. Also, traditional publishers can get your books into physical bookstores as well. Whereas with you self-publish, it's typically going to be all online. And that doesn't mean you can't have a paperback. I do have paperbacks of my books so that if you order through Amazon, you can get a paperback. It's just that it's not going to be in Barnes Noble, for example. But I don't know the last time I stepped into Barnes & Noble. I was Noble. just going to say, who, yeah, like, yeah. Who, and most moms out there just want for money, maybe not, maybe prestige is like a secondary thing, but they just want to be able to create some wealth and maybe live out a dream that they wanted to write a book. Yeah. So that's why I think self-publishing is the way to go. Now, I will say that a lot of people told me that my books are unicorns and that no one, and I'll, I'll share how much I make. No one... most self-published authors don't make the amount of money I'm making. So what a lot of self-published authors do is they use their book as a lead generator for another product or another service or another thing that's a higher priced offering. So a lot of authors will use their book as a lead generator to get coaching clients or to get speaking on stages or to sell a course that they have or to sell a membership that they have. And that's the way that they ultimately will monetize it a lot more. But I still think you can make a lot of money self-publishing. You can make $500 a month, $1,000 a month, $1,500 a month when you do things the right way and when you're really filling a hole in the market. So with my... I have two books and I make anywhere from four to eight grand a month in royalties. Like that's my cut, my profit from my two books. I think in 2021, I made 97 grand from my royalties. Wow. In 2022, I made 75 grand. Thank you. I, I never knew they would be so profitable. Like I, when I first self-published money, honey, I just figured any money I invested into it, I would lose. So I was like, okay, I'm broke. I don't want to invest a ton of money into this book. So I spent $561 on an editor on a cover designer to launch the book. Like I went as cheap as possible because I just assumed I would never see that money again. And then the first month I I made like $600 and I was just shocked. And now I'm making even more than that. So it has been very fruitful for me, luckily. I love that. I know you said it was a unicorn, which I, I, I honestly don't know if it is or not, but I'm curious for someone who doesn't want it, who wants maybe not, you know, 
$10,000 a month, but just maybe even a thousand, is there anything they can do to speed up that process or to kind of any, any hacks? Yeah. Oh yeah. So much. And I made so many mistakes along the way too. Like I didn't know what I was doing, but it all worked out in the end. So, <laughs> and I can talk about the mistakes, but just to put it out there, like no, nothing went perfectly. This wasn't simple or easy for me. Like it was absolute disaster to be honest with you, but <laughs> some things I would suggest are you have to know your unique value proposition. In other words, why would someone buy your book over the thousands that already exist about the same topic? Because it's hard to write something that hasn't already been written. For example, when I was writing Money, Honey, it's a personal finance book, right? There's literally thousands of personal finance books. So the epiphany I had with writing that first book and why I wrote it is because I used to be a financial advisor. All my family and friends were coming to me for financial advice. And at some point I was like, you know, weird. I wonder why they're not learning on their own or reading books or listening to podcasts. And then I had this epiphany. Oh yeah, personal finance is boring, right? It's intimidating. It's complex. No wonder people don't like to learn about it. So then I thought, how could I make this topic sassy and fun and simple? And at the time, there were no books that made finance fun or sassy and no books that were written by a young woman, which I first thought I had imposter syndrome about. And I was like, who am I to do this? But then I realized it was actually a strength because I had a unique voice that didn't exist in the market. So I saw that I could fill a hole in the market that existed. There was this problem. I had a solution for it. I could write about this in a way that was funny and entertaining and simple. So that is what I did. And I think that's the main reason my book really resonated and took off the way that it did. So that, that's what you need to understand is why would somebody buy your book over all of the others? What's the problem you are solving for people? Where's the hole in the market that you are filling? If you can't articulate that, it's going to be really hard to sell your book. So that's one big thing. Another thing is you need to have a launch team. People who, when you publish your book, will buy the book, share the book, review the book. Now, there's a lot of misconception around, I, so I need to have a platform to successfully self-publish a book. And that's not the case. My following and my platform came after I published my first book. So when I published my first book, I didn't have an email list. I didn't have an Instagram. I didn't have a website. No one knew who I was. You know, I, I had my personal Instagram with 200 followers. Like that's all I had. So you don't need to have a platform to be really successful at this. You do need to have some kind of launch team. And even at the time I was like, well, besides my 15 friends and family, who's <laughs> going to care? Like, who's going to be in my launch team? I don't know anybody. Like, who's going to care? So what I did, and I didn't, I didn't even do this purposely at the time, but I was in a couple of Facebook groups that had a lot of my target audience, female millennials. I think one of them was more of a political Facebook group and one was about a different topic. But every now and then a finance question would come up. And so I would go on, I would say, hey, I'm Rachel. I'm a former financial advisor. Here's what I think. And I would just type out a really helpful response. After doing that enough times, people started to recognize that I knew what I was talking about and that I was adding a lot of value. So if a finance question would come up, they would tag me and they would say, hey, you need to ask Rachel. Rachel's the finance guru, or you got to ask her. So I kind of gained this credibility in these Facebook groups as this finance guru of these Facebook groups. And one of them had like 2,000 women and one had 13,000 women. But after doing, this was even before I had the idea to write my book. After doing that enough, there was just a lot of trust and credibility that I built. So when it came time for me to write this book and I had this idea, I was like, hey, here's something about doing. What do you all think? And they were like, oh my gosh, Rachel, you have to write a book. We, you know, you make this so easy to understand. And they were just emotionally invested in the, in the process the whole way. You know, I asked these groups, what should I name the book? Can you please help me vote on the cover design? All this stuff. So they were really emotionally invested and they wanted me to succeed. So without knowing, I sort of created this informal launch team by utilizing these Facebook groups. And when it came time to publish the book, there were thousands of people who were ready to read it, leave a review, share it, and really help me have a successful launch. So the lesson I want everyone to take away from that is to add value first before asking for anything in return and to not do it in a slimy way. Like when I was first engaging in these Facebook groups, I didn't even think about writing a book. I just genuinely wanted to help people. I was very, very passionate about it. I enjoyed doing it in my free time. And people could see that and they could sense that. And after doing that so much, 
when I did have something to offer or sell, they were really eager to help me with that and to spend money on that. Oh, so that's an amazing tip. How many people do you recommend people have somewhat to do a launch to make it successful? If you're really going to create a formal launch team, which I didn't do, and I would recommend doing, you really want to try to have like 200 extremely committed people on your launch team. And I know it sounds like a lot, but you can do some of the things that I did and be working on this even before you start writing your book. But 200 is the number I would aim for. And what would you have these people do? Like, so you're prepping for game day. What does that look like? You can have them vote on which cover because you can have multiple cover options. You can have them vote on the cover. You can have them vote on the title, the subtitle. You can have them proofread. So, cause you're going to have an editor, but editors don't catch all the typos sometimes. So it's, it is helpful to have people proofread just for typos, not for editorial input and, and having them help you do all of this. They, they want to, and they will be more invested in the success of your book. And then when it comes time for launch, you, you just give them the game plan. Like, Hey, on this date, go buy the book on this date, go leave a review on this date, go share it. And you just give them a lot of direction on the way that they can help you during launch week and really throughout the rest of the month. Cause you want your launch to be pretty strong for a whole month. Do you recommend someone hiring someone to help coordinate all this to know when you should launch and how to like what day people should leave the review and all that kind of stuff? Or did you figure that all out on your own? You can. I figured it all out on my own. There's a couple resources I'd recommend. There's this book published by Chandler Bolt. And he outlines everything. He has courses, he has coaches, he has programs now to help people self-publish books. And I'm sure they're great. I didn't pay money for any of them. I just read his book and I followed what he said in his book. <laughs> so that's what I would say to do. I was just trying to be really frugal at the time. Um, and then in my second book, Passive Income Aggressive Retirement, I also talk about self-publishing as an income stream and how to do it successfully and how my experience went. So I talk about it a little bit as well. Amazing. Okay, Rachel. So thank you for deep diving into that. Is there any other passive income streams that you could tell mom for moms? I could talk about so many. I could talk about, so you tell me, I could talk about rental properties, syndications, portfolio income, coin operated machines, digital downloads, online courses. Yeah, let's do digital downloads and online courses because the other ones are more the money, but I guess for someone who doesn't have money but has time, what would you recommend? Yeah, for sure. So we can stick in this royalty category. Now, digital downloads is not one I've personally done, but I know a lot about it. So basically the way this works is you create a template. You create something one time that then can sell over and over again. And a lot of people will do this on Etsy. You can create a template like a certificate or a gift card or a resume or a wedding invitation or a gift tag, anything, any kind of template you can think of, create it once, put it on Etsy for sale. And the way it works is you're not shipping these to them. You create it as a download, downloadable item. So if somebody goes to your Etsy store and they purchase this download, they purchase the PDF and then they print it out themselves on their own printer. So you don't have to do anything. You create it once. If the template sells, it it might sell over and over and over again. And that can be an awesome passive income stream. Now, a resource I'll share with you is my friend, Cody Berman. I think his Instagram is, is Cody D. Berman. He is the expert in this. And he has this e-course or this course called e-printables on Etsy or something. He has made so much money doing digital downloads. And he's taught like, I, I think like thousands of people how to do it at this point. So I would look at his Instagram, look at his resources He's an expert, but that's basically the way it works. And I think it's another really beginner-friendly passive income stream. Yeah, if you check out episode number 31, I had his partner, Julia, Julie Berninger on and from Gold City Ventures. She and Cody are co-partners. And you can definitely, I have a link actually I'll put in the show notes for the course. It's phenomenal. And it's also an affiliate here. So if you support them, you also help support this show. And I know so many people who have done this course and said how great it was and how much money they made out of the gate. So definitely you should follow Rachel, go check it out. Nice. Love that. Okay, Rachel. So what about online courses? How could somebody get started in that? Okay. I think online courses is another great way to generate passive income. For me, this came later. So this came after I did publish my books. I did start growing a little bit of a platform and email list. I think when I launched my first online course, I had like 
two or 3,000 email subscribers and two or 3,000 Instagram followers, something like that. And I do think it is easier to sell an online course, like a higher priced online course, when you do have a little bit of a following and some trust and credibility built with people. So I'm, I'm speaking about it in terms of like a sales funnel. It's easier to start selling a smaller product that's 10 or 15 bucks, like a book or an ebook. And then if people like that, then they might be more likely to buy a 200 or 300 or $500 course from you. So I just think it's easier. It's not impossible. You can still just go out and launch an online course. You just have to go back to the same things with the book. How are you solving problems? Why would someone want to buy your course? What unique gift do you have to offer? What's your unique voice? What's your unique value add? So some things to think about are if people ask you for advice, typically just in general, what are people asking you for advice about? Right. Are you a plant mom? And are you known in the neighborhood as having like all the best plants? And people are like, how do you keep your plants? And you're always sharing that with people. Do you know something about like, are you homeschooling your kids? And people are always asking you what you're doing and how you create the curriculum. So what are people coming to you for advice about? And can you turn that into a course that you can offer? I would recommend starting at a two or three hundred dollar price point, and then you can play around with it from there. So that's my best advice for online course creation. Different platforms that I've heard are the best are Teachable, Thinkific, and Kajabi. I use Kajabi for my online courses. And the first one I created was is my Get Your Financial Bleep Together course. <laughs> I don't know if I'm to say that or not. Yeah. So I created that. And the reason I created it is because everyone was reading my books. And then they were like, hey, do you offer like one-on-one -on -one coaching? You know, can you help me? Can you be more hands-on? Do you have something that can help hold me accountable? Because I realized it's one thing to read a book, but how many people are actually implementing what they learn in the book and taking action? And it turns out it's a very low percentage of people. So I realized I could add a lot of value if I create a course that has structure and accountability and has other people where people are more likely to take action on what they're learning. And that's what they started asking for. So that's that's the reason I launched that first course. One more tip, and then I'll stop rambling. <laughs> no, this is so helpful. Keep going. <laughs> My other tip for online course creation is to run a beta round of the course first. It's sort of like a trial test round of the course first. And what I mean by that is two things. First of all, don't create the course and then sell it sell the course and then create it. And I know that sounds wild, but it's how a lot of successful course creators launch their courses. So what I did for my course is I created the curriculum of what I thought it should be, the different topics. I put together the landing page, the sales page. And I said, hey, I'm going to launch this course. For the first time only, I'm going to give a huge discount for this first round of beta members. And it's going to be, I think I did $197 was the very initial cost of the course. I said, if I don't get enough signups, I'm not going to go through with it and I'm going to refund your money. But otherwise, I'm going to create this course and it's going to be a beta. So I want you all to understand this isn't going to be the final version of the course. I need your input. I need your feedback. I need to know how to make it better. So I launched the course, sold it. I got the signups that I wanted to get in order for me to actually go through with creating it. And then each week, the content would come out. So every week... I was literally creating the content as I went. Hmm. But that way it ensured that I wasn't spending hours and hours and hours of my time creating a course only to find out no one wanted to buy it. So it it just eliminated that risk for me, the the time risk and the financial risk of having gone through all that effort only to find out, oh, no one cares about this. No one wants to buy it. So I think that's a smart way of approaching it. And then each week I I would record the modules, edit the modules, put the modules out. And that's how I did it. With the beta round, you want to make sure people are leaving you feedback as you go. And then, you know, the beta members have access to the course forever. So after that first beta round, I probably changed or re-recorded or tweaked 50% of the course based on their feedback. And then the next time I launched it, it was 297. But those beta members had access to this now very improved version. So that is... That is course launch in a nutshell. That is amazing. And then how much for you personally, I'm curious, what was your number that you wanted to reach? Was it a certain actual just number of people or a certain dollar amount that you were shooting for to make it worth your time? I think I was shooting for 10 grand and 
or maybe I wasn't even shooting for that much. It might've been five grand that I was aiming for at that time. And I think I exceeded that and I made nine or 10 grand on that beta launch, which was like absolutely shocking to me. Amazing. Yeah. So you want to have an idea of like, what's going to be worth it for me to go through with creating it. And if you don't get to that minimum revenue, then you just say, Hey, you know, there wasn't enough interest in this course. Thank you all so much for signing up. I'm going to refund your money. And if I do anything similar, I'll let you know. And as long as you're upfront about that in the first place, no one's going to be upset about that. I'd be curious for somebody, what if they don't get the signups, any tips or advice? Because I feel like I would personally like, take it as an affront, like, oh man, no, but it, as like, I didn't do a good enough job or people don't want to learn from me or whatever it is. A- any tips for someone like in that regard? It could be so many different things. Yeah. So if that happens, you need to do some more market research and you need to understand, is it priced incorrectly? Like, is the value there for me to have asked for the money that I'm trying to ask for? Or do people not see the value? Is my messaging clear? Like maybe my copywriting is not good and my landing page is not good and people don't understand what they're getting or it's confusing or there's questions or it's just not um, compelling enough for people to sign up. So it could just be a, a marketing copywriting issue or it could be, well, why would somebody buy this course? If, if your course doesn't stand out from others or solve a problem in a unique way, then it comes back to why would somebody buy it over the others that are already out there? So you really have to do a lot of thinking on that and be able to communicate what makes your course different and what are the benefits? Like what's going to be the end result of somebody signing up for your course? I love that because then it kind of takes the person out of it so that I feel so many times, especially as women, we have this thing in our head that, oh, who am I to do something? And then let's say they're willing to put themselves out there, but then it's almost like a rejection. Like, oh, well, I guess I'm not good enough or I can't do this or whatever. You're the million and one things that go through someone's head. I like that if you frame it like that, then it's not so much me. It's, oh, it's the marketing, it's the copyright. Well, oh, I could tweak this or, oh, I could do this. Kind of takes a little bit of that mental stress away, you know? Totally. It's never, it's rarely about like you as a person. It's just, it's kind of fun to me because I treat it as a game and it's like, okay, well, which part was off that, where could I tweak this and improve upon? And every time I do a course launch, I'm asking myself that regardless, regardless of how much money I made or how successful or not successful it was, it's like, okay, cool. Now what can I experiment to make it even better the next time? Can I tweak the copywriting? Can I tweak the price point? Can I tweak such and such. And if you treat it more out of curiosity and a desire to learn and improve as you go, then you'll take things way less personally. No, which is great. And this way for moms out there who want to do this, it's just less scary, less intimidating. And if you fail, it's not really failing. You're just tweaking or pivoting or the next thing. It's not nothing like, okay, you know, you're not a failure. You're not a bad mom. You're not a bad whatever. <laughs> oh my gosh, exactly. And there's this acronym I learned. I don't know who came up with it. I can't take credit, but FAIL stands for first attempt in learning, mm, which I, I like think that. is amazing. Yeah, because yeah. you're not actually failing. You just made your first attempt. Now you've learned. Now you can tweak. Now you can do it again. Hopefully you fail again because then you can have made another attempt in learning. And every time you do that, you're getting better and better and stronger and stronger. And just imagine iterating over and over again like that and and what you can eventually sell and become when you treat it that way. So I like that mindset shift. Yeah, it's so good too. Even it's so easy to tell our kids to do something, but it's another thing that for us to do the same thing. Like we tell our kids, like I know I tell my daughter all the time, like, when she was learning how to ride a bike, I'm like, you're going to fail. You're going to fall. Like you're going to fall because you don't know what you're doing. And that's okay. You're going to roller skate. You're going to whatever. You're going to fall. Not necessarily fail, but you're going to fall. You're going to get probably get hurt. It's not going to be fun. You're going to struggle with it and just know that's going to happen. But that's just part of the process. And just like with cooking or with learning how to read, she's struggling right now. I'm like, it's okay if you don't know a word. You're not going to know it. You're going to struggle. It's going to be hard. But th- that's just what it is. And just like get that out of your way. And then now like, let's. Let's, let's struggle together, you know? But then when it comes to ourselves, it's like, oh man, I'm struggling. <laughs> but there's like no mom, quote unquote, you know, helping you necessarily guiding your way. And it's your own internal dialogue that you have to deal with. So I really like that this reframing to really help moms get out of their own way and go accomplish whatever it is that they want. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just a healthy way of looking at it. I can think back to when I self-published Money Honey and all the different ways I failed. Like I didn't have a website set up for literally 
I think it was a year or two years until after I published my book. <laughs> I my the link that I had was insane and I didn't even own the domain and it was some like free MailChimp link. So where people could go sign up for the freebie, they had to go type in this crazy link that just had all these numbers and letters. And like in hindsight, that was not a good idea because it wasn't easy for people to go to the link and sign up for the freebie. And my cover was a disaster because I designed the cover on my own, which you should never do. So when I look at the first version of the cover of my book, I'm like, that's hilarious to me. <laughs> I quit writing the book four months into the process because I had so much imposter syndrome that I was like, this is absolutely stupid. I'm not, this is gonna be embarrassing if I go through it. So I'm just saying that because there's so many ways in which I failed at writing this book in the first place. But because I didn't give up and because I saw it as an opportunity to learn, now, years later, I'm making a lot of money from this book and it's selling better and I'm getting more people to sign up for my freebies and, and everything's just working a lot more fluidly. But you have to, you just have to learn as you go. It's unavoidable. I love this. Oh, Rachel, is there any other passive streams in this royalty line of work that someone could do to create some passive income? I think those are the main ones off the top of my head. The other thing about writing a book is that you write a book and then five years later, you don't remember what you've written. So <laughs> I'm like, wait, are there, what are the other passive income streams? Those are the main ones though, that I have experience yeah. with and that I make money from. So I think any of those, especially digital downloads and print on demand are very beginner friendly. And just to help a bum out there understand how much time. So how about like, how much time would you think someone would need to put in for each of those? Oh, okay. Good question. I would say, I mean, all right, here's how I look at it. There's two phases of creating passive income. There's phase one where you're creating the passive income stream, you're building it, you're marketing it, you're doing everything. And there's nothing passive about this phase. This is actually a very active phase, but you have to go through this to get to phase two, which is once you've launched the thing or once you have it going, that's when it becomes a lot more hands-off. And that's when it becomes more passive. So when I refer to any of these passive income streams, I'm talking about phase two. Right. So in the beginning, though, there's a lot of time that you have to invest into it, money you have to potentially invest into it to get to the part where it becomes passive. So, for example, with self-publishing my both of my books, they both took me about nine months to write and market and launch. And that was around a full time job. That was around me also spending most of my weekends investing in real estate and managing my tenants. So I was mostly writing my books in the evenings. And I think I could have done it a lot faster if I didn't have all that other stuff going on. But that's how long it took me, nine months from beginning to end. And then it became a passive income stream. Um, with digital, with the print on demand, I spent a good six months spending a few hours per week, really heavily investing into creating designs, putting designs up, marketing my designs. And then I got to that point where I made $1,700 in one month. But it, you know, it was very active at first. Then you you earn your way to where it turns into a passive income stream. And then what about for the digital downloads? How much time? Similar as the drop shipping? I would say so. And that's the one I haven't done personally, but okay. I would say digital downloads is probably really similar to print on demand. And then for the course, I'm going to assume also very heavy, intensive upfront. And then... Very heavy. Yeah. And the online course is is nice though, because you can pre-sell it without having created it and sort of save yourself from doing a lot of that time if it doesn't sell. And then the, so for example, my first course that I created was an eight week long course. So for eight weeks, I was spending like a lot of time each week because each week I had to script the module and record all of them and then edit them myself and then put them up or create any templates that went with it. So that was, that was very heavy for eight total weeks. And then doing all of the feedback and revisions from that beta round and then turning into more of a passive course. Did you have anyone helping you? So for a mom who may not have an intense eight weeks, is there ways that, that you could have outsourced, especially after if you did make the money you wanted up front? For sure. And I did not have anyone helping me, but you can definitely hire a VA, like a, just a temporary VA. You can hire a video editor. There's onlinejobs.ph, I think is the website okay. where you can find VAs, freelancers, editors, anyone from the Philippines, and you can pay way less money than you would in the US. And it's more than they're used to making. So it's a win-win for both of you. And you can, you can pretty much outsource anything. So if you're a mom that 
doesn't have a ton of time to just like take these eight weeks or whatever and really devote into creating a course, then you can do as much as you can on your own and just outsource the rest. I love that. And for all of these, you can really outsource. Even your book writing, you can outsource the editor, the publishing, the book cover. Like, yeah. So you it's can not on you. literally outsource the writing itself. You can hire a ghostwriter to write your book for you. Which if is- you feel like, if you feel like you have a message and a gift and a something to share with the world, but you feel like you're not a strong writer, that's what ghostwriters are for. So don't, don't ever stop yourself because there's ways to get this done, no matter who you are or what background you come from or how much money you're making. Do you know of any websites or resources to find ghostwriters I could put in the show notes? No, I know a couple within my circle and I, I don't, I, so I've written my, both of my books. I wrote them. I do have a friend, Kent Sanders, and I can look up his website, but he does ghostwriting and I, and I haven't really seen his work, but he's a strong writer. So, but I don't know of a resource. I'll have to think about that. Rachel, this has been so amazing. Thank you so much for coming on today. Before I let you go, though, at this point in the show, I'd love to enter a lightning round. This is where I ask my guests the same four questions each week. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Question number one is, what is one fun fact about you that not many people know? I would say that I can speak a little bit of Italian. And right now in Colombia, I'm working on taking salsa lessons and I'm like obsessed with dancing salsa and I'm getting pretty good at it. So I'm going to have to figure out how to do it in Denver when I get back to Denver. (laughs) Can you just quickly share because of the passive streams that you created, like, what are you doing right now? What are you allowed (laughs) you to do? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. I feel very fortunate. I, I can run my business remote and work as little or as much as I want to right now. I'm working two days a week and running my business and I'm traveling all over the world. So I've been in Colombia in South America for, for, I'm going to be here for a month total. So I'm just like hiking and meeting people, making friends and dancing salsa and eating amazing food and going to the gym. And it's amazing. Like I feel so grateful every single day. So really cool. (laughs) Awesome. Okay. Well, question number two is who inspires you the most and why? I'm a big David Goggins fangirl. Do you know David Goggins? I don't know who that is. (laughs) He is a Navy SEAL and he grew up in Indiana and was experienced a lot of racism, experienced a lot of issues with abuse from his father, was broke. You know, his family lived off like food stamps and poverty, all this stuff. And he grew up to become when it became a Navy SEAL and now is known for like doing all these ultra marathons and he's an ultra runner. And his story is just so inspiring and so compelling. And the takeaway that I get from it, because a lot of people just think he's like this hardcore fitness guy, but the takeaway I get from it is that he, he, he helps people to not be in a victim mindset. And his story is that regardless of your circumstances or how bad things are, or how much you have going against you, you're still in control of your life and you can still become whoever you want to be. And I just think it's amazing. So he inspires me a ton in in so many different areas of my life. That's amazing. I will put a link to his content in the show notes. And I'm assuming, is he written books stuff too? Yeah. His book can't hurt me is like my favorite book of all time. Awesome. I'll put a link and it actually pivots right into question three is what books are you reading now or have read Mm -hmm. and love that you recommend. And I'll also put a link to your books as well in the show notes. They are great. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah. So can't hurt me is definitely one of the top books. The five love languages and attached are both books that totally open my eyes as to my need, my emotional needs as a person and in a relationship and how to have a healthier relationship. So I love both of those books. The Miracle Morning is amazing. And The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy is also a really great book. book. Yeah. That's one of my top ones. Yeah, I could keep going, but I'll stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the final question is, what is one actionable tip or piece of advice that you can tell our moms out there to help them on their own financial independence journey? I would say if anyone is a control freak or perfectionist, I am also a recovering control freak and perfectionist. (laughs) And... One of the things that stopped me from taking action is that I felt like everything had to be perfect. And I felt like, well, I need to learn more or I need to have more experience or I need to have more knowledge so that I don't make a mistake. I didn't want to make a mistake that would cost me time or that would cost me money. And so I held myself back for many years in doing anything, in creating passive income streams and investing in real estate and just and just taking action. And I just had to accept the reality 
that I would make mistakes no matter how prepared I was. Because there's always going to be an aspect of you don't know what you don't know. So I had to embrace mistakes are going to happen no matter what. And once I was, was able to accept that, that's when I could really take those first steps. So just remember that messy action is better than no action, right? Done is better than perfect. And until you can embrace the fact that you are going to mess up, you're going to fail, you're going to make mistakes, it's just going to be really hard to take those first steps. So just accept it's not going to be perfect. Done is better than perfect. And, and just go get started. Rachel, this has been so much fun and just so amazing. You're such a wealth of knowledge and you explain things so simply and it's easy, like easy to access and digest information. How can my listeners connect with you further? Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. So both of my books, Money, Honey and Passive Income Aggressive Retirement are on Amazon and ebook, audio and paperback. My Instagram is Money, Honey, Rachel. And Jen, what I'd love to do for your listeners is for anyone listening that wants to download my passive income starter kit, I will give that for free. So you can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com forward slash passive income to go download that. Amazing. Thank you. And I will put links to this in the show notes and definitely go get your free copy. And Rachel, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. If you did enjoy today's episode, along with my other content, please subscribe on the platform that you're listening to and leave a rating and review. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing this episode, with just one other person who you think would benefit, that would be amazing. Just that alone will help double the Investor Mama podcast. So think of a friend, family member or on social media, whomever, but reach out to them, share this. If you like the content, I would just so appreciate it. Love to grow the podcast more. So thank you all in advance. And I hope you take action with the steps that Rachel has like laid out for you and would love to hear feedback on if you do take any action, let me know. You can find me on social media. Just go to investormama.com slash connect and don't hesitate to DM me or email or whatever. I'm also looking to bring on new guests. So if you'd like to come on the Investor Mama podcast, also reach out as well. You can email me Jen, J-E-N at investormama.com. All right, this is Investor Mama. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Investor Mama podcast. If you liked today's episode, please support us by clicking subscribe on the platform you are currently listening to, leaving a comment or awesome review, and spreading the wealth and sharing this podcast with friends and family or on social media. Don't forget to check out InvestorMama.com to connect with our community and sign up for our email. Stay tuned for next week's episode.